0: I encourage you to grab the Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, bring it. Uh, there's a Bible in, your, in the front pew in front of you. And open up to Psalm 130 so you can follow along as we, as we go through the psalm. Well, on August 29th, 1973, engineer Roger Chapman and veteran British Royal Navy officer Roger Malinson entered into the depths. They were operating a submarine burying transatlantic telecommunication cable 150 miles off the Irish coast and after having done hundreds of these routine dives they had just completed another one and they had emerged with their 20 foot submarine the PCs the third PCs three. But then something happened unexpectedly the tow line accidentally pulled open the engine hatch and then immediately seawater rushed into the engine room of the the aft of the back of the of the submarine making the craft far too heavy and immediately it gained weight and fell uh, plunging uh, 160 feet to the very end of the tow line Uh, the men said the 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 submarine was swaying like a pendulum bobbing up and down along with the boat and the men were uh, on the voyager on the ship above they were scrambling trying to figure out what they would do when all of a sudden the the, the, uh, the seamen saw that the the tow line had gone slack. You see, the tow line was able to uh, carry up to six tons, but now with all the seawater that had been put into the uh, the submarine, it weighed 13 tons, and immediately the submarine started to go, and it went up to t- probably about 40 miles an hour, and within 30 seconds, the PCs. Would crash into the seafloor below. Chapman and Mallison, having some wherewithal, they grabbed the cushions that were in the cabin with them. They put them onto the back of where it, where the submarine was falling, and then they stuffed their mouths with rags in order to not bite through their tongues. And then they hit the seabed with a shuddering crash. They were smashed into the back of it. They smashed into one another, but amazingly, neither man uh, was injured. Mallinson looked at the depth gauge and it read 1,575 feet which would be a depth that's twice as much as any other prior submarine rescue that had ever been attempted. Like a good engineer, Roger Chapman, he found his notebook and his pen and he wrote down on his notebook, the first thing he wrote was on bottom. Like a good engineer, being very succinct into the point. Well, at one point or another, we can often find ourselves on bottom. The bottom has fallen out of our lives. It's dark. You don't know where you are. You don't know where you're going. You feel tremendous pressure, not 50,000 pounds a square inch of the water that they would be, that submarine was under. But just pressure in your mind and pressure in your hearts. You're not sure if you can hold it all together. You're cut off. You're fearful. You have this ominous sense that everything is going to come to a tragic overwhelming end very very soon. Have you ever felt that way. Do any of you feel maybe a little bit that way even right now psalm 130 begins with out of the depths it's a psalm of ascents but in order to ascend you've got to be down low and that's exactly where this psalmist finds himself down at the bottom out of the depths the word depths it's a hebrew word that's referring to it's a water term and it can have various means it can mean the deep in the singular it means the deep so that's pretty deep the depths it's plural plural of deep and it means it's very 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 deep as if there is layer upon layer upon layer water upon water upon water that's where the psalmist finds himself as he pens these words the teaching of psalm 130 is pretty simple if we raise a cry out of the depths The Lord will hear us and he will respond. Questions I want to bring to us as we reflect on this over the next several minutes is what are the depths. And what do you cry out when you're in the depths. Well the first is the depths of guilt. And when we're there we cry out forgive. The second dimension of the depths is the depths of emptiness. And when we're here we cry out wait. And the third of the depths is despair. And from here we cry hope. So let's take a dive in and go through each one of these of these dimensions of the depths in order to better understand what they are like and what we are to cry out when we're in them. So first the first is the depths of guilt. Here we cry forgive. Look at verse 2 and 3 of Psalm 130. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, in verse 3, O Lord, who could stand? Now this word iniquities, it's just a Hebrew word, uh, one of several for the word sin. It literally refers to being twisted or bent or crooked. The, The Latin of inequity or iniquity just simply means unequal or to be disjointed which carries the same kind of idea now 65% of Americans in a 2016 survey agreed that we all sin a little but most people are good by nature but if you look at this psalm and I think the teaching of the Bible as a whole it doesn't agree with that idea Verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who, who among us could stand if he did it? If he marked the crookedness of our own selves, can any of you stand? I know I can't. And that's the teaching of the word of God. None of us can stand if he were to mark iniquities. Now, iniquities, it does have to do with our actions, so some of our actions might be considered crooked or twisted they're they're off in some way they're distorted but the real teaching of the scriptures that really bring us to have to understand these is that it's not just our actions but our very nature which is bent or twisted and part of the crookedness of our own way of thinking and feeling and engaging the world is that We're not even willing to admit that we're crooked. That's part of the whole twistedness of it all. So there are many ways that we of course experience this whether you have a know-it-all attitude or you're very controlling or with your tongue you're willing to mislead or to lie. Or perhaps with your family member or with a neighbor you've been harsh or unkind. Or you know you're dealing with greed you always want more you're never satisfied it's never enough or you're not following God's plan for sexuality or on and on the list goes on of all of these ways in which many of us find ourselves distorted or twisted and rather than really deal with the iniquity that's within us the habit of all of us is to deny to blame shift. To become passive-aggressive when things start to come up. Or we begin to potentially become exposed. Or we, we turn to compulsive behaviors uh, that are iniquities themselves in order to help us avoid and face some of the other things that, are, that we're battling in our own lives. Or we opt for the, the greatest denial mechanism of all that the Bible talks about. And it's the spiritual avoidance strategy of self-righteousness. You start comparing yourself to the other person. Look how bent and twisted that guy is. At least I'm a lot straighter than him. Whereas we are in need to actually compare ourselves to something else other than to one another. Or we find ourselves uh, using this strategy when dealing with iniquity. We only see one set of iniquities but not another set of iniquities. And we see this kind of going on even in our in our culture there's a the progressive mindset which tends to see social sins and then there's the conservative mindset which tends to see individual sins and groups tend to emphasize one or the other but generally few emphasize both and yet it ends up being just another form of denial in which you only want to see some things but then you are willingly blind to another set but you see the true evangelical mind is willing to see both social sins and individual sins to acknowledge them all why because of the Evangelion that is the gospel the good news the good news is able to take on all iniquity no matter its form in its individual sets as well as in its social collective sets and it has the power to engage and to transform all of it but how well Chapman and Mallison they were uh, down at the bottom of that submarine and they were actually slowly suffocating on the very air that they were breathing you see because when God breathes out in the Bible he breathes out life but do you know what you breathe out you breathe out poison you breathe out carbon dioxide. And if you're in a sealed room, over time, the, all the good air will turn into that carbon dioxide, which you have exhaled. And do you know that what's, what that will do to you? It will poison you, and it will eventually kill you. That's a pretty powerful picture of what we actually are in ourselves. We don't breathe out life in our being and who we are. We breathe out death. We poison ourselves. And the buddy next to you is also breathing out poison. In the spiritual realm, that's actually how it works. They, in that sub, had an air scrubber. But it wasn't working completely uh, the way it should. It was partly working. But there's actually a spiritual air scrubber. In Psalm 130. And it's in verse 4. It says, but with you... There is forgiveness. With you. There is forgiveness. When we are in the depths of guilt. And we are begin to actually realize. What our nature is like. What our actions have done. And the negative consequences that typically come out of those actions. We realize we're in deep trouble. The poison is all around us. And we've contributed to it. But there is something that will free us and it's called forgiveness. No matter the the guilt you feel the shame you might feel the disgust that you might have with yourself and there's plenty of people who are feeling that way perhaps even right now. The call of the psalm is to cry out forgive me. And the amazing truth is that if you cry out forgive me to God it is in his very nature it is his very delight to immediately offer forgiveness. To cleanse all of the poison that you have been contributing to and creating. The scriptures say, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And so when you're in the depths of guilt, what do you do? you cry out to God who will immediately come and scrub it clean and he does it through the cross and through the blood and the work of Jesus Christ that's how forgiveness is offered and so all you need to do is go to him go to him and cry out to him forgive me acknowledging what you've done and it is immediately done the air is clean and you are clean But it doesn't only do this and if you look again at verse 4 it says but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You see when we enter into the forgiveness of God and we begin to realize that it's real and it's true and it's having an effect on me that I'm I'm free I'm forgiven even for all the things that I've done it has a transforming effect on your mindset and you want to change this is that idea of living into this holy fear you want to change you realize I'm forgiven there's absolutely nothing that I've done in my life there's nothing that I can't do even today that Christ is not willing to forgive and therefore it's going to change how I'm going to approach things I'm going to be like King David Do you remember King David who sinned terribly but David was went public with his sins he told all of Israel, despite being the leader of Israel and probably not really having to do it. He admitted and confessed before all of the people, not just God, because he knew he was a forgiven man. And when as a man or a woman knows they're forgiven, then you're free. There's nothing. I know I did that. I'm a sinner. I'm full of iniquity, but I'm forgiven. And it frees you up. It fills you with joy. It helps you realize there's nothing. There's nothing in my life that I need to hold back or I need to keep under uh, under wraps and, and stay in that shame. I can let it all go, let it all out. And the church, of course, is to be a place where sinners can come for a hospital rather than being a place of righteousness in a country club. No, we come and we let it all out. That's what we're invited to do and we don't only do that we no longer have to self justify ourselves no we self examine ourselves because if God forgives those sins he'll forgive any sin and so I want to examine my whole self in order to bring it all out and put it before the foot of the cross in order to be forgiven and not only does this happen when you begin to live into the power of forgiveness but then it means that you will be quick to forgive because you have been forgiven so much. Now you're going to forgive those who have wronged you and when you've wronged someone you're not going to hide it, but you're going to go to that person and say I've done you wrong. I am so sorry. Please forgive me. This is the power of forgiveness. It frees you from all of these things. But you've got to be willing to look at yourself and admit it and lay it out there. And in so doing, the poison is removed and the fresh air is brought in for us to live. So the first depth is the depths of guilt. And when we're in that place, perhaps you are there today. And I would just encourage you just in your mind before God, pray to him and ask for forgiveness and it will be done. You can leave here. This place clean and free. The second. In our psalm is the depths of emptiness. The depths of emptiness. And it's here. That we cry I wait. Now look at verse five it says. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word. I hope. Now going back to Chapman. And Mallinson. The The pieces lied half buried at the bottom of the Irish Sea. And one thing that they knew pretty immediately was that there, there was no way that they were going to be able to save themselves. Of course, if they had tried to save themselves and escape and go to the surface, they would have been immediately crushed by the overwhelming weight of all of that water. It would have collapsed their bodies and they would have been immediately dead. they they would have drowned if they had thought well even if that wasn't true maybe they could actually swim and if they had attempted to swim no person on one breath has ever been able to swim 1600 feet on one breath in fact i was curious and the world record is held by stig severinson who on january of this year he swam 662 feet on one breath But they were three times that distance. And they didn't have any flippers. And so what does that teach us? It teaches us that when you're in the depths. You can't save yourself. And so don't be foolish. To think that you can. Because when you're in the depths. The great temptation is to act. To get yourself out. Because we live in a do-it-yourself culture. Don't we? I'll figure it out. I just push a little bit harder maybe if I spend enough money or if I write enough emails or if I study or work just a little bit more without resting or perhaps if I just parent my kids just right or if I throw a fit with the doctors or if I send out just one more resume or you know whatever it is that you're thinking of how you're going to solve this particular problem when you're in the depths the reality is you cannot save yourself and so the answer comes in six in verse six my soul the psalmist says my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning more than watchmen for the morning so when you're in the depths the very hardest thing to do is nothing nothing But you wait. You wait on the Lord. You don't take matters. Or you stop taking matters into your own hands. And you appeal to the God of power and might and wisdom. Who can handle the situation. My wife Tracy and I. We learned this this lesson many years ago. We were doing a major reconstruction project. Of the house that we had just bought. And we had received a, a permit to do demolition of our house. But we had also put in an application to receive a building permit, uh, which, after months and months, we were getting refusal after refusal from the inspectional services here in Boston. We were burning through our reserves, time was not on our side anymore, and we were getting very afraid because we saw the, the end that was coming. And if we didn't get this building permit for reasons that we weren't exactly clear. We didn't know what we were going to do. And then we did something radical. We prayed. I don't know why it never occurred to us before. But we finally started praying and asking God to give us the building permit. And we prayed earnestly that that day when it finally came to us to do so. And something amazing happened. The very next day, at dinner time, my father came home and he had the building permit in his hand. I said, Dad, what happened? He said, Well, I heard you guys praying. And I thought, the next day, he thought, oh, maybe I'll just go down there and see if anything could happen. And he ended up meeting the inspector of our ward and Explaining the situation, showing him the plans. The inspector said, yeah, that that looks good enough. And he signed right off on on the permit. And it was in my dad's hand. And he was home for dinner. And we couldn't believe it. That God would do such a thing. You see, we weren't waiting on the Lord until we finally leaned. And let go of our own power and strength. And we asked him to take care of it. And he did take care of it so waiting on the Lord means no longer it might mean waiting long might not but it it means no longer trusting in yourself but there is one other aspect of waiting on the Lord that I want to bring your attention to in verse five it says your soul waits on the Lord it waits on the Lord now what does that mean well it's a shift in mindset rather than waiting on god to to give you something or to deliver you from a certain problem you begin to realize that the emptiness around you is not the problem but it's the emptiness within you and that the what you really need is god himself and so waiting on god is not just waiting on him to deliver you from the problem but it's waiting on god for him It's realizing what Puritan John Owen, who writing in the 17th century, who amazingly to me at least, wrote 325 pages talking about Psalm 130. I don't know what kind of person can do that, but he did it. And this is what he said about what waiting on the Lord means. He said this, he says, it is the Lord himself that the soul waits for. It's not his grace or mercy or relief absolutely considered but the god of all grace and help that is the full adequate object of the soul's waiting and expectation do you understand my whole being is to wait for the lord like a, a night watchman as it says here in psalm 130 a night watchman has to endure long tedium of hours staying awake in the dark they can't fall asleep they're not idle but they're like a century on alert paying attention waiting waiting against evil to fill to fill up the emptiness waiting and blocking it and waiting on God to come God himself to deliver and not only to deliver but to recognize that he is the one you've been actually waiting for all along my soul longs yes It faints for the courts of the Lord. That's Psalm 84. O God earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Psalm 63. As a deer pants for flowing streams. So pants my soul for you. O God. That's Psalm 42. And in the exact same vein as those verses. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. Do you understand what this is saying that the answer the deliverance is not removing you from some expectation it's not getting a building permit although if those are your needs then I hope the Lord brings those right away but the real deliverance is the emptiness within you and God wanting to come in a new and fresh way and fill you up that is the deliverance waiting on him he alone Is the one who can fill you with joy and wonder and purpose and meaning. And it's he alone who desires that intimacy with you. And so when you're in the depths of emptiness. The word to speak is wait. There's one final one. The third is the depths of despair. The depths of despair. And when we are here my friends. We must cry out the word hope back to Mallinson and Chapman Mallinson described the three days and nights as an underwater prison of pitch black and he admitted to multiple times despite being a a vet submarine naval officer of just sobbing with primal emotions of fear and a sense of abandonment the engineer Chapman He described it as a crazy upside-down world of noise, foul smell, and fear. Noise because the submarine was acting like an echo chamber... ...just picking up on all the sounds above them. Smell because, well, the men, after three days of retching... ...and human waste in their very small space, it was unbearable to them. And fear because they were staring death in the face... When you're in the depths the greatest temptation is to lose hope hope is anticipation of a good future based in a reliable source that guarantees the future despair is when the source that produces the desired future is shaken or broken. I think the Apostle Paul perhaps felt this instinctual sense of terror and fear. And he actually mentions it in 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8. He says this. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. That we despaired of life itself. Indeed we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves. But on God who raises the dead. He delivered us up from such a deadly peril. And he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope. That he will deliver us again. When we put our hope. In some object. That cannot bear the burden of our hope. There's only one outcome that will take place. Disappointment. The object of your hope is the key. And when we place the teaching of the Bible. Is that if you place your hope in any other object other than God in the end before your last breath you will realize that what you've been hoping for has failed you it could be relationships it could be your family it could be your children and their their future it could be your career it could be something around your your health or whatever it is if your hope is in the wrong object you will be bitterly disappointed and you will indeed fall into the depths of despair. But my friends, if our hope is in God, God alone will not fail you. He cannot fail. And he will not fail you. Not because you are worthy, but because he loves you. And so he invites you without ever forcing you or coercing you. He invites you to put your faith and your love and your hope in him. And he will take your good future and he will make it so. And that good future will be him himself, even as you wait upon him. And so it's all made possible in Christ himself. Christ, who went into the very abyss, he descended into the abyss... In order to devour it and destroy it in order to give you a hope that is sure a hope that in which if you put it there you will not be made into shame and play with the words of verse six the morning light the morning light went into the depths of the darkness or also verse six, 6 the steadfast love entered into the chaos of this fallen world or verse 7 the plentiful redemption filled and swallowed up the black hole of evil you see Christ the redeemer Christ the redeemer of verse 8 entered into the prison of our iniquities in order to abolish the prison itself and to pull it apart Christ has entered into the depths In order to destroy it. In order to deliver you and me. He is the one who he invites us to put hope in. And when you put hope in him. You indeed will not be made ashamed. But if your hope is in anything else. This is the fundamental teaching of the Bible. Hear it again. If your hope is in anything else. It's vanity. It will fail you. You'll be miserable in the end. But if you put your hope in God, in Jesus Christ, you will not be disappointed. Glory to God for this. Where is your hope? Where is your hope today? Is it in things that will fail you? Or is it in he who cannot fail? Place your hope in Christ. Because it's in him, through him, that forgiveness comes overcoming the depths of guilt put your hope in christ who fills you even in the emptiness and who frees us from the depths of despair which you will not be put to shame well it took over a day uh, for the the team to find the pcs3 see it had been uh, half buried in the in the seabed Uh, it was in a it was in a trough and so all of the signals that they were using to try to find it they were having a lot of trouble finding it but after about a day they finally were able to locate it and eventually over the course of these three days three different teams a British team a Canadian team and an American team out of uh, out of San Diego uh, came to work and to try to find the submarine and than to hook up the tow lines in order to try to pull it back. Interestingly, dive after dive over the course of these three days failed. Uh, The different submarines, the San Diego submarine was a a remote submarine, a remote control operated submarine. All of these failures, they could first it couldn't find it. And then they had battery issues. And then the remote uh, the remote submarine had an electrical shortage. They had wire entanglements a manipulator arm failure if it could go wrong it went wrong and the men were desperately low on oxygen they only had a few hours of oxygen left when the british sub finally was able to attach a tow line uh, to the pcs-3 and then a few hours later the san diego remote sub was able to attach a second line to uh, to the uh, sunken submarine and then according to Chapman and Mallison the the worst part of their their um, escapade started to take place because as the submarine was being pulled up over the next two hours. You see there was a major storm on the Irish Sea at that time and the Vickers Voyager which was pulling up the submarine was cresting over 20 plus foot waves. So the PCs three was there at the end of a rope. Like a yo-yo being yanked up and then dropping. And these two men were in a what would be not much larger than a, a, an old style telephone booth. They had nothing to hold on to in, in, in this place. And though they were veteran submariners, they were retching this entire time. Of, because they were being pulled uh, all over the place. It was a, a terrible experience for all of them. Or for both of them. And then finally, the sub was 100 feet below the surface, and then they stopped. Because the men up above knew that they did not have enough enough tow uh, line on the submarine. It was too heavy, and they were going to lose it if they brought it all the way to the top. So they sent down a scuba diver. The the diver brought down a rope, and it was an incredibly dangerous mission. And the man had to get onto, onto the sub and hold onto it. And he described it later as like riding a bull. He got onto the sub and he was able to hook a third tow line. And then 30 minutes later, they were up. But then they couldn't open the hatch. And for a desperate 30 minutes, with the oxygen almost out, they had to try to get this hatch open. And Chapman finally, from the inside, was able to kick open the hatch. And after 84 and a half hours, The voices of Chapman and Mallinson were finally heard in the open air. It proved to be the deepest submarine rescue ever in history. And the men only had 12 minutes of oxygen remaining. As amazing astonishing historic that rescue. It pales in comparison. To the toil and sacrifice that Jesus Christ went through. For each one of us. Each one of us down at the bottom of the sea. Whether we feel it, know it or not. He has gone down to the depths. Sparing nothing of his own expense in order to save you and me. Christ alone is willing and able to hear you. To hear your cry arising from the depths and willing and able to descend to the deepest depths to save you. But you must cry out. Lord God. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you hear. Thank you for your power. Thank you Lord that you hear us in the deepest depths. And Lord, if someone is here and they're desperate and they're afraid and they do not know what to do, Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you. And in do, so doing, Lord, that they would comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. And that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. Do it, Lord, for your glory. Into our joy. Amen.